Thank you, stand open our Bibles. Mark chapter 6 this morning. Mark 6, we'll begin reading verse 1, down through verse 6. And he went out from thence and came into his own country, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? What wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country and among his own kin and in his own house. And he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. He marveled, the Bible says, because of their unbelief. The Bible tells us many stories, people of great faith in the Bible, but it also highlights those without faith. I want to preach to you this morning on the subject, the danger of unbelief. And I don't want you to say this morning, I don't have to listen to this message because I'm saved. No, this applies to both the unsaved and the saved. And the danger is extreme for both, whether you are without Christ or with Christ, to live a life without faith. All of us like to be trusted and believed in. None of us like to have a doubter that says, you, you can't do that, especially as a man. That just makes you more determined than ever to prove them wrong. But you're talking about God in the flesh coming to the earth. This, this is God in the flesh. And the earth is filled with doubters. I'll talk to you for a few minutes about the prominence of unbelief because that's normally what we see. If you try to get people to gospel, 99% of everyone you talk to is an unbeliever. I don't know what that's like. I was born and raised in church. So even before salvation, I was taught the Bible. Soon put my faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I remember before I came under conviction and got on my knees and cried out to God for mercy, although I had not yet taken that step of salvation, I still believed in God. I still believed this book. I still believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here comes Christ back to Nazareth, his hometown, a small town where he was obviously very well known. Verse 2 says, on the Sabbath day, as his custom was, he comes and he teaches with great power and great authority. Now, go back with me to Luke. I just want to remind you of a text that we've preached on before, chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, speaking of his first trip to Nazareth as a, a teacher, as a preacher, where he will reveal himself to be the Messiah. A year has passed in between these two appearances here at the synagogue. But look what it says happened a year earlier. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. He came to Nazareth, Jesus, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He stood up for to read and there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, 
and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, he gave it again to the minister, and sat down. The eyes of all of them were in the synagogue, were fastened on. They knew this day was different. They knew this text was different. They knew something special had just happened. They just didn't know what. And he began to say to them, this day is the scripture revealed, this scripture fulfilled in your ears and all bear witness and wondered at the gracious words. Now, that was our first reaction. Their later reaction was to put him to death, to seek to put him to death. But can you imagine as this young man that they had known all of their lives, the son of Mary. Now, when it says, is not this the son of Mary, I think here they are making almost accusations in the sense of, in these times, you always refer to the son of the father of the home or the man of the home, not the mother, but they're making innuendos that uh, he was born out of wedlock. He was an illegitimate child. Those are the innuendos being made here. But can you imagine, is he, here in his own hometown, he reveals himself after reading this prophetical text. He reveals himself as the Messiah, God in the flesh. What an incredible moment. And he is rejected by his own, his own Brothers do not believe in him outside of Mary. His family does not accept him as the Messiah. And coming back a year later, here's what he does. He preaches, he teaches with authority. He's already doing, performing miracles, proving once again his God in the flesh. And what do they ask in verse 2? From whence hath this man these things? This is rhetorical. They know. The only way to have this kind of power, wisdom, and authority is to have it from God, receive it from God. Uh, this is God in the flesh, so they have to ignore the obvious in order to maintain the lie. From whence hath this man these things? What wisdom is this which is given unto him? And even such mighty works are wrought by sin. So they recognize the wisdom, the authority, and the mighty works. They're just saying, there's no way this came from heaven. There's no way this is of God. It's an obvious rejection for unbelief to happen. There is an obvious rejection of the truth. And here's what's astounding. As you preach the gospel, we have the inspired, the infallible, the inerrant, the preserved word of God. And you can go and open up the Bible and preach the truth, but man can hear it and understand it yet refuse to receive it, that's called unbelief, and they will tell you, be careful, don't fall into the trap, because they'll tell you, if you give me more proof, for the unbeliever, the hardened heart, you cannot provide them enough truth. They'll argue creation, they will try to deviate from the subject matter, they'll go to, is this not the carpenter, uh, the brother of James and Joe? What does this have to do with the conversation at place? You're simply trying to, a diversional tactic here in order to not accept the truth that you're being confronted with. Now, here's the danger of unbelief. It's so prominent, but it leads a man to hell. To refuse the truth is to reject the Savior. 
How many people, how many people on a Sunday morning will sit in churches all across the world? How many people sat in these pews, heard the truth straight from the word of God? It doesn't matter who the preacher is. If it is the word of God being preached, salvation by grace, through faith, without works, and yet man will refuse the truth because someone in his past or her past has told them that salvation includes a work or baptism or you can earn it. It's not all grace. It's only partially grace. Part of salvation depends upon your goodness or your perseverance. And there's a rejection of the truth. Now, here's what's hard to believe. You're talking about God, God, God in the flesh, looking at them, preaching to them. Who could preach with greater power and authority? And he has a year of miracles here and teaching. There's sufficient proof. The words already reached back to Nazareth that this Man who claims to be the Messiah has performed the supernatural. So there must be an obvious, repeated, hard-hearted rejection of the truth through unbelief. That brings, that rejection, that unbelief, here's the danger, it brings eternal damnation in hell. So for that person sitting here today, hearing the gospel again, I doubt there's anyone sitting in here this morning hearing the gospel for the very first time. But if you're unsaved, that means you've already rejected the truth of the word of God. No one can change that. If God in the flesh is speaking, now these are people that love church and love the Bible. That's hard to compute in my mind. These were not Bible haters. They would go to the synagogue to listen to the scripture being read and to memorize the scripture and to learn from the scripture. They didn't mind the the informational teaching of the word of God. They liked the place. They enjoyed the environment. But when there was an application of truth that said, you must now believe or reject, they chose to reject through unbelief, which means this group had, if they stayed in that condition, 2,000 years later, they're burning in the eternal lake of fire for seeing. But, but their blame is much greater because no other generation literally sat under the physical, the visible, the Son of God in their presence teaching and explaining the Word of God. Can you imagine the power of the Spirit of God that was present and yet they rejected? This helps me as a pastor as I preach and you see people reject the truth and you say, what more could I have done? Could I have been more passionate? Could I have prayed more? Could I have been more persuasive? Could I have been more biblical? Could I have been more thorough? But the bottom line was there were thousands and thousands, not just once or twice, that repeatedly we know at least on two occasions, these men had sat and listened to him preach and teach. And it was a blatant rejection of the truth a refusal to believe and the questioning from whence cometh these things. What wisdom and power and authority and mighty works. Where did it come from? But this is the original sin starting way back. This is the mother of all sins. Unbelief. They were scandalized by his claims that he was God in the flesh. Now we do have to understand this. For, for anyone to stand up, we know they were waiting for the Messiah. 
they, they had to have preconceived ideas how he would appear and how, would, how he would reveal himself to be the Son of God. But let me ask you this. If you were a Jew 2,000 years ago waiting for the appearance of the Messiah, what exactly would you be waiting for? A prince, a throne, a kingdom, a royal arrival. They're, they knew the scriptures. The scripture did not prophesy of pomp and circumstance. It prophesied of humility, a lowly birth. Those things were prophesied. And here's what happens. This virgin conceives a son. He grows up in this small town. And everyone around him, because of the smallness of this town, they all know the family. They have bought items, maybe tables and chairs and other items at this carpentry shop. They've known Jesus. He, he went to the school. He, he played tag with the other boys. He, maybe he was on the soccer team or the football team or the baseball team. Do you understand what I'm saying? He, he was normal in the community, abnormal in the sense of being a perfect child that had no sin nature, that knew no sin, would not participate in sin, and properly addressed sin in other children that invited him to sin. We can't wrap our minds around that. We can't even envision those circumstances. But this community as a whole said, there's no way because we know the family. We know the mother. We know the brothers. We know his background. There's just no possible way. And here's what happens. This world rejects the Lord Jesus Christ because they don't accept how he was revealed, his life, his death, his resurrection. They have a preconceived idea who Jesus should be. For some in this generation, it's like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Or some social justice warrior that's going to eliminate inequality as they define it. Or he's a master teacher. Do you realize not just the unsaved, the most heathen, but we're talking about religions all across the world that refused to preach and teach that Jesus was God? What was the whole refusal here? And what does man have to admit in order to get saved? That Jesus is God. So their refusal, what? They didn't refuse the fact that he was a good teacher, that he knew the Bible, that he preached with authority. They just said, there's no way this man is God. And you know what the Jehovah Witnesses say, and the Mormons say, and the Muslims say, and almost every other religion under the sun says, Jesus was not God. Good man, great teacher. Simply not God, which means that everything they teach is damning souls to hell because this is the foundational principle of the gospel. Unbelief is rejecting the fact that Jesus Christ is and came as God in the flesh. That's the danger. That's what sends a man to hell. So they were scandalized by his teaching uh, that, that he was the son of God and they were too familiar. Look what it says, verse 3. Is not this the carpenter? Here's what they're going to do. When they refuse the message, they have to attack the messenger. Don't take it personal. When you come with the truth of the word of of God, well, I'm under attack. Uh, Yes, because you're preaching the truth. And they have nothing to do, no other tactic outside of attacking the messenger. We'll see this as we study the rest of the chapter. John the Baptist is put to death simply by 
delivering a message that is hated. And he lost his head. Just be thankful that you can deliver the message without losing your head. Well, you may lose your mind. Some of you have already done that. But thankfully you have not lost your head. Now here's the shame in all this. Look what it says in verse 5. It's not just the prominence of unbelief that we're talking about this morning. Look at the power of unbelief. And he could not there, uh, and he could there do no mighty work. Now, this is one of the most amazing verses in all the scripture. Let's read it one more time. And he could there do no mighty. Now, hold on for a second. Is there any way for God to lose his power? Have less power? How, how is it then that he was limited in power? There is a foundational principle when it comes to spiritual truth that God always responds to and rewards faith. You know what salvation is offered to all. Forgiveness is offered to all. Why do, does not everyone on the planet go to heaven? Because they have to respond by faith to be rewarded with Salvation. They can know it. They can, they can repeat it. They can understand it. But salvation is not offered until there is a response by faith that says, I want to put my faith, my trust alone in Jesus Christ is the only source of salvation. Until a person does that, he can know the whole Bible by memory and go to hell. But he's got to put his faith in trust. Now, hold on for a second. That extends beyond the faith that brings salvation. That extends in church. Here's what I want, to, want you to understand this morning. It's so vital, so important, especially in the perilous times in which we are living. I truly think the average believer is half asleep concerning the times that we are living in. And these are times that are going to test your faith. Young people, this is why parents and fathers on a Father's Day, there's nothing more important than walking out these doors this morning and understanding your duty to instill faith in your children because the times that are coming are going to test their faith. And most are not being built up in their most holy faith. They've been built up in their mother's most holy faith or their father's most holy faith or their preacher or teacher's most holy faith, but they have never built up their own, their own faith. And that's going to be revealed very soon, the first test that takes place. And we have Christians literally being, you can see their emotions are dominated by fear. Whatever the news of the day or whatever is taking place around the world, it's not faith in God, absolute trust in God. Now, I don't know about you, but as a father, if, if, if I went upstairs, I, I, I go out to get a drink in the middle of the night, and I see the lights on, and go knock on the door, and Ashley and Brittany are both awake, and their eyes are red, and I say, girls, why aren't you asleep? Well, Dad, we're just a little worried. What, what are you worried about? You worried about snakes? Are you worried about <laughs> darkness? You worried about... Robert's breaking in. Where do you work? No, we just we don't know if you're going to pay the electric bill this month. So you've lived with me this whole time, and you're up here, can't sleep, crying because 
you're concerned whether or not I'm going to pay the electric bill. Now, let me ask you this. How would I feel as a father if I found that out to be true? How do you think God, the father, feels when he looks at his children all concerned about tomorrow? Not about what they're living today, about what might happen tomorrow. And Christians, here's, here's what he is saying. I, I came here to do mighty works. You say, Pastor, hold on for a second. Can, can we limit the power of God? Can we limit the, the promise of God? Can we live the Christian life without experiencing the supernatural? How many of you feel like God has favorites? And most don't want to admit it, but they do. Why does God bless that family? Why does God bless that ministry? Why does God bless that man? Here's what I've realized, and I've come to realize it on a deeper level. The longer that I lived, and the, the more I'm around Christians and pastors and men of God, I see those that I admire the most. And that it just seems like God has this window over their house open up and he's pouring out on their ministry the blessings of God. And here's what you see when you get around them. Great faith. They just believe God. I watch some of them. I've listened to their testimonies. And sometimes, you know, we say there's a fine line between faith and foolishness. And I've looked at them and thought, you're crossing the line. You jumped over the line. And then they leave blessed. And I say, what, what happened there? And it's amazing the level of faith and then you look at those that never experience the supernatural and they're hiding fear no no faith in god i'm going to work this out i'm going to i'm going to make sure to get alone i'm going to connect with the right people and i'm smart enough in life to to make some good decisions and god is literally boxed out of there like it's faith in self and here's what's sad you watch a generation of young people we've seen it now long enough cap city has been around for over three decades and you have had the ability now to see those that grew up and built their faith in god the word of god and you see them busy in the work of god and blessed in the work of god and you see others whose faith was never built and they're either out in the world or simply warming a church pew it's hard, hard to believe that Christ can be limited because I wonder what, what miracles we could have read about. Maybe there were dead here, there were funerals here that Christ could have interrupted, would have interrupted, lame that could have been healed. Extreme circumstances that only Christ could have taken care of. And he came to town to do exactly that. But God says, I only act upon the faith. Not the large faith, not the great faith, but the faith. And those in this town said, no, we, we don't believe in you. They were offended. Offend. You know why so many cannot act on faith? You know one of the greatest underminers of faith in Christianity is offense. You know why there are a lot of Christians in this church? that are not growing, Christian all around the world that are not growing, because at some point they got offended, offended with someone which is literally rooted in an offense against God. Why did God allow that to happen? Let me ask you this. I wonder what God would like to do in Austin, Texas. I wonder what God would like to do in Cap City Baptist Church. I wonder what God would like to do in that Sunday school class or the school ministry or the Bible college. I wonder what God would like to do in your home. But... We have limited. Let me ask you this. Can you say this morning, my faith or lack of faith has never limited God in my home, my life, my ministry, or my circumstances. I can't. I wonder what more could God have done in my own home 
had my faith been greater. Probably the most powerful thing I've ever heard in my whole life was hearing Clarence Sexton talk about being with Brother Lee Robertson shortly before his death and him lamenting his lack of faith and saying, how much more could I have done if I had only had? We're talking about a man that grew a church to 8,000 active members, a Bible college, started churches through missions all around the world, but there in his area and in the state of Tennessee. In our generation, one of the men with the greatest influence, maybe in the history of America, and yet he's lamenting close to his death his lack of faith. And here's what I say, let me crawl under a chair and hide. If that man lacked faith, I can't measure mine. But church, if we'd only say, do we believe God? Do our children know that we believe God? Do we act in a way that others, faith, their faith is increased because they see our example of great faith? They could not. They could not even receive a miracle because he said he could there do no mighty work. If only that could sink down your heart this morning. If only you could leave with that phrase, he could do no mighty work because of their lack of faith. He marveled at their unbelief. Now go back with me to chapter 3, verse 5. Here's the product of unbelief. And this makes me nervous. Mark 3, 5. We're talking about faith and living by faith and growing in faith. And everything you see up to Mark 6, this was all about faith and, and Christ encouraging their faith and building their faith and rebuking them for their lack of faith. But chapter 2, we see a rejection in the unbelief of the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, the same crowd, uh, religious crowd, it, they're going to reject him through unbelief. But look what it says, verse 5. When he, Christ, had looked round about on them with anger, being grieved. Why is he grieved? The hardness of their hearts. Unbelief is a result of the hardening of the heart. You are not born with a hard heart. Have you ever seen the faith of a child? This week, we worked with children and teenagers. You know why uh, every time we have vacation Bible school and a teen revival, these kind of things, we'll have 85 to 100 young people, kids, teenagers, young adults, Say because the heart has not been hardened yet. Now it is, in many cases, being hardened. They're in circumstances that are hardening their hearts, but thankfully at this point, they're not hearted, not hard-hearted. Now you tried to gather a group of unsaved adults together and see that kind of response. You're not going to see the same kind of response because the hardening of the heart. Look what it says in Mark chapter 8. What is it that causes that hardening of the heart, both in the unsaved and the saved? Mark 8, we could talk about a lot of things, but let's deal with the primary reason. Mark 8, verse 17. When Jesus knew it, he saith unto them, Why reason ye, speaking to the disciples, because ye have no bread? Perceive ye not yet, neither understand. Have ye your heart, what? Hold on, he's talking to his 12 disciples. Why would, he, why would he be investing in 12 men with hardened hearts? 
He's saying the word of God can soften the heart. You know what softens a heart? A, a proper meditation and acceptance of the word of God. You're sitting here today and some are hardening their heart. Same room, same church, same Bible preacher, same Bible, same Holy Spirit of God. Yet some are hardening their hearts and some are softening their hearts. The hardening takes place based on how you meditate on the word of God. You receive it, how you accept it and respond to it. So you can have two people sitting side by side. You can have husband and wife, two siblings. You can have two neighbors, two people on the same row. One sitting here this morning, hardening their heart. The other one is softening their heart by the way they are receiving, comprehending, meditating on, submitting to, and accepting the word of God. So this morning, you'll walk out a little softer, you'll walk out a little bit harder. And in the disciples' case, can you imagine all day, every day, they're looking at the miracles, they're watching, they're listening to Jesus Christ as he preaches. And he says, you have hardened hearts. Having eyes, see ye not? Having ears, hear ye not? Do ye not remember? I'm amazed as a preacher what you can preach and what is misconstrued, misunderstood, misrepresented, or simply rejected. Because when we do not Truly open our ears and meditate and say, God, I want to hear from you. And the Holy Spirit, I want you to do something in my heart. That builds our faith and softens our heart or it hardens our heart and increases our unbelief. Look what it says. This is all about faith. Look, look what it says. Mark 5, 34. The previous chapter we just preached on this over the past few weeks, he said to her daughter, Thy what? Thy faith. This is Christ responding to faith. Now, you know what this is? This is an unsaved woman who is processed, meditated, properly responded to, so she has faith to put her faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 36, as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he's speaking to the ruler of the synagogue about that child, now that daughter that has died, he said, be not afraid, only what? So the way we respond to the word of God either hardens our heart or softens our heart. If we accept it in humility, here's what pride does. Now remember, Daniel 4, we won't turn there. Nebuchadnezzar lifted up in pride. Daniel has a dream. He reveals it to Nebuchadnezzar. He says, God's going to have to cut down this tree. He's going to leave the stump, prophetically speaking, of God taking that man, and what's the Bible say in Daniel 4? He literally gave him the heart of what? A beast. Through pride, he said, if you're going to harden your heart where you can't comprehend, you can't hear, you can't understand, that's the heart of a beast, I'll just give it to you. And he went out and lived like a beast for seven years. And then when he humbled himself, what's the Bible say? His heart returned to him and he said, my reason, my understanding was restored. Yes. Now here's, okay, let, let me illustrate modern day culture. Go back with me to Job. I need you to stay with me and understand the scripture for a minute. Job 39. Look what it says in verse 13. Gavest thou the goodly wings unto the peacocks, or wings and feathers, 
unto the ostrich. Now the folks going to be on the ostrich for a minute. Look what it says. Which leaveth her eggs in the earth and warmeth them in dust and forgetteth that the foot may crush them. One bird that instead of hovering over her eggs and making sure that they hatch and watching over her young, she abandons those eggs and forget it that the foot may crush them or that the wild beast may break them. She is what? Why does she act this way against her own that she gave birth to? She is hardened against her young ones as though they were not hers. For her labor, labor is in vain without fear because, why? Verse 17, because God hath deprived her of wisdom. Neither hath he imparted to her. That is a wisdom and understanding is a gift from God. And you look at this world and without wisdom and without understanding, they literally function as if they had the heart of a beast. Their heart is hardened. And hold on for a second. One of the ways you see a hardened heart is through no care, no love, no concern for that which they birthed. Hold on. Are you making the connection? In the world in which we live, go with me to Lamentations. Lamentations chapter 4. Isaiah and then Jeremiah. There's a little book that follows the book of Jeremiah. Lamentations chapter 4. Look what it says in verse 7. Jeremiah is writing this book, wrote this book. After the captivity there of Jerusalem, they were besieged by Babylon. And when Jerusalem fell, the devastation was incredible what they suffered but leading up to that there was great death hunger devastation as a result of that city being cut off look what it says verse 7 her Nazarites were purer than snow they were whiter than milk they were more ruddy in body than rubies their polishing was of its sapphire this is previous this is previous to being besieged He said it was a beautiful thing to see the people of this city, the Nazarites, verse 8, but that change. Their visage now is blacker than a coal. They're not known in the streets. Their skin cleaveth to their bones. Why the starvation that they're suffering? It is withered. It has become like a stick. They that be slain with the sword are better than they that be slain with hunger. He said it's better for those to leave the city, be slain with the sword, than suffer what we're suffering within the walls of this city. For these pine away, stricken through, for one of the fruits of the field. Now hold on, look what it says, verse 10. The hands of the pitiful women have what? Sodden their own children. They were their meat in the destruction of the daughter of my people. He said these people in their suffering so hardened their hearts that mothers did that which is unnatural in the hardness of their heart, their unbelief in God. They refused. As Jeremiah preached the word, they could have received deliverance from God, but they hardened their heart, refused the word, and when they were faced with starvation, they boiled and ate their own children. That's how hard the heart can become. The danger of the hardness. What man can do with a hardened heart goes beyond repulsiveness that is even understandable. 
And when man in our society hardens their heart, one of the first ways the hardness, the extreme hardness of the heart can be seen in the treatment of the unborn or the newborn. From abortion to legislative bodies that we've seen in recent years clap and cheer because laws that have been extended allowing the cult that is the murder of the unborn. The religion that is the murder of the unborn. You wait, if any changes are made in Roe versus Wade by the Supreme Court, you watch the madness of those who live for the destruction, the murder, the dismemberment of the unborn. How can that take place? The hardness of the heart. Man, through unbelief, can become that hard that he celebrates the death of the innocent. Go back with me to Mark chapter 6 and we'll be finished. If you're not saved this morning, your obstacle is unbelief. It's like the denial of oxygen. Can you imagine if someone stood in front of you and said, I don't believe in oxygen? I just don't believe it. I don't see it. Don't understand it. Thus, I deny it. You know, the the very reason you're talking to me is because of oxygen. The very thing you're denying is the reason you're able to stand here. If God deprived you of oxygen, you could not stand here and argue with me. And when someone denies God, the the very reason they're able to stand there is because God gave them life. And when God says life is over, they won't be able to stand and continue to deny. But that is the absolute hardness of man's heart. This morning, you ought to say, I am done denying God's salvation by grace through faith. I refuse to live as an unbeliever. How many remember the day that you put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Let me see your hands. You remember the day, the place. You remember what took place in your heart is God took you from unbelief to belief. Wasn't that the greatest moment of your life when you said, I'm not going to live as an unbeliever. How am I going to deny the the word of God and the work of God? And those, can you imagine, those that grew up with God in the flesh rejected him. How many Nazarites during the time of Christ died and went to hell with Christ 30 years in their town? That's hard to believe. But look what it says in chapter 6, verse 52. Speaking of the disciples, we'll... Preach this soon enough. Christ comes walking on the water. And once again, verse 50, has to tell them, be not afraid. In the midst of that storm, they wondered. But, verse 52, he gives the reason for their fear in that storm. He said, they consider not the miracle of the loaves. Why? Their heart was hardened. Now, church, I want to move briefly past for just a moment preaching to the unsaved, and preach to those of you that are born again, children of God. How many sitting here today as Christians have a heart of heart? And I I think the number one reason Christians have hard hearts is because their own goodness. What they've accomplished and what they've become as Christians. I'm on a good enough level. I'm a good enough father. I'm a good enough witness. I'm a good enough member. I'm a good enough minister i'm a good enough prayer warrior i'm good enough and because of that we harden our hearts what the holy spirit of god wants to do in us and through us 
we leave so much on the table, so much more could be done, so many more people could be reached. The work of God, I, I'll tell you right now, God's plan for Capital City Baptist Church was never to fit in this building for 30 years. You, you couldn't convince me of that in a million years. No, there's no possible way. What more God could have done through this church, through this ministry, and through these families had we simply believed God. But there are some here don't even have enough faith to tithe. Didn't even have enough faith to be a witness this week. Didn't even have enough faith to stand on the principles of the Word of God and tell one of their own in their own family this week, that's not right. We won't do that. And as people of God, we have to say, we must guard our hearts because if we're not tuning in every service, listening intently, receiving, and then what? Here's, here's what determines the hardness of your heart. Not just receiving and understanding, but then responding to the work of God. Your heart without even, you think I'm, I'm going to the church of God, my, my heart cannot be hardened. I'm reading the word of God. I love the word of God. That doesn't mean that your heart's not being hardened. Your heart is hardened through a lack of response after there's an understanding. Church, I'm begging you. God has so much more for us. Would you tune out for a little bit and turn off all the excess noise about how crazy the world is? It's crazy, and it's always been crazy, and it's only going to get crazier. Have you ever read the book of Revelation? Did you expect it to get better? But you know what can get better? Your faith. You know what can get better? The supernatural work of God in your home. You know what can get better? Your relationship with Almighty God, with Almighty power, with the desire to do something supernatural in 2022.